This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. God, men are so annoying. Russell's going to walk the dog right now. It's 10 p.m. He just walks out without his cell phone. And I'm like, hey, it's pitch black. Why don't you take your cell phone? He's like, I don't need it. I'm like, must be nice. Must be nice. Look at that male privilege. Like, to think, like, I can just walk out here, pitch black. No phone. I mean, Chowder is basically a little killer, but. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogab, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Did you have a good day at the pool? Yes. I did not order $2 million worth of booze, though. Ah, that's a bummer. (laughs) Do you know what I did today? What? I finally, you're going to be so mad at me. (laughs) I finally got to the post office. For what? To mail out the giveaways. (laughs) (gasps) Sister. How did you not put me in charge of that? That's exactly what I said in the DMs and the apology DMs I sent to them. I said you had to send apology DMs twice. You better apologize on air right now. I do not want to be associated with this. I had to send apology DMs twice. I said I truly am terrible. Yeah. To Gabby, who won our canvas bag, the first winner after the mugs. I had already sent her a DM that was like, hey, I'm so sorry. I haven't sent the bag out yet. I promise I'm going to put it in the mail this weekend. She was very kind. She's like, don't worry about it. Like, I'm just excited about getting it. No, I'm worried about it. I'm worried about it. Two weeks later, I still haven't gone to the post. I'm appalled by all of this. But, okay, you don't understand. These last two weeks were the last two weeks of school. I was up to here with, like, school crap. I'm so sorry. But I literally said... (laughs) In my apology DMs today, I was like, hey, so sorry. They're in the mail now. I really should have put Mogab in charge of this. <laughs> Mogab, who's known also, at, at the also, post office on a first name basis. I'm going to go ahead and also just apologize for the packaging that it is in. Because oh, God. if Mogab had sent it to y'all, there would be like confetti in there. There'd be a nice little thank you note. It would be like so cute. I was in charge of it. So... I didn't have any packaging. I was just going to use the (laughs) post office packaging. (laughs) But then I realized for the bag, I had to use one of those like super flimsy envelopes. So then I got this is painting me. (laughs) Then I got a second super flimsy envelope, rolled it up in that (gasps) one, and then put that in the bag. Okay, okay, okay. Hold on. Before you damage my personal brand. Oh my God. I'm appalled by all of this. Gabby, I'm so Answer sorry. Answer for your crimes, Kristen. <laughs> Answer for your crimes. This is me answering for my crimes. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I would like to go on record that this this is not representative of my my entire being, my personal brand, my beliefs, no. values, or core. Like, this is why I have put so Mogab in charge of once we finally launch our Patreon, which might be coming up here pretty soon. I have put Mogab in charge of all perk fulfillment. 
for the Patreon. <laughs> this is the first time hearing of this. No, it's not. You knew that. I was going to send you the cards two months ago that I still have sitting on my counter and still haven't put in the mail. I should have brought those to the post office with me. Yeah, what? I thought you already mm. sent those. No, they're sitting on my counter, ready to go, mm. all addressed and everything. I should have brought those with me when I went to the post office. I'll get them to you soon. Listen, if I had a genie wish, <laughs> you, well, you already know. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm very sorry. I'm terrible at that stuff. I'm look, I'm the writer. Okay. I am not a packager. Perk fulfillment. I should have put, oh, yeah, I should have put Mogab in charge of this thing from the beginning. Is that the true crime story for today? Are we done? Yeah, we're done. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Life doesn't happen biweekly. So why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject here available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. All right, Mogab. I, I'm stoked for today, actually. This is such a good story. Today... I'm going to tell you about the murder of Martha Puebla and the biggest example of serendipity mixed with true crime I've ever heard of in my entire life. Oh, I don't know how to feel about any of that. Part of this case was covered by the Netflix documentary Long Shot, which I highly recommend. And it's short. It's only like 40 minutes long. So you really should watch it. It's so good. And there was also a well-researched article in the LA Times called Interrogation, Then Revenge by Joel Rubin and Ari Bloomkatz, as well as a smattering of other articles and court documents that, of course, will be linked in our show notes. What a good word, smattering. Smattering. It is a good word. Sounds like it's a menu item at the Waffle House. A smattering. Well, it would be like a smattering of something, like smattering a smattering of, of, of yeah. Oh, Yeah. I go for a smattering of hash browns. <laughs> so sound good. Right now? Mm-hmm. It was May 12th, 2003. 16-year-old Martha Puebla was sitting outside of her house on the street chatting with a few friends in the Sun Valley neighborhood of L.A. It was around 1030 that night. And while Martha talked to her friends, unbeknownst to them, a Chevy Malibu was slowly circling the block. It finally came to a park near her house and the driver got out of the car. He walked up to Martha from behind and said, who are you? Martha turned around and responded, I'm Martha. You know me. The driver said, no, I don't. And before anyone could react, the man reached into his sweatshirt pocket and pulled out a nine millimeter handgun. Her friends scattered as he started shooting, the fatal shot hitting her in the head just below her left eye. Martha was killed instantly, and it was fired from so close that soot and burn marks were left on her cheek. The driver ran back to his car, leaving the street empty, until Martha's mother, hearing the gunfire, rushed outside and saw her 16-year-old daughter's body laying on the street, her eyes still open, and her white sweater covered in blood. Dios mío, esta muerta, she screamed. Oh no, I know what that means. My God, she's dead. Immediately, it was clear this was a revenge shooting. It all started five months earlier, on November 27, 2002. So five months before she was killed, just before 2 a.m., one of Martha's friends pulled up to her house with another friend, Christian Vargas, and the friend she was with is going to remain unnamed for her safety. Christian stayed in the car, and the friend went up to Martha's window to ask if she wanted to come hang out. The two girls talked for a few minutes, like through the window, until Mm -hmm. gunshots popped off. The girl then jumped through Martha's window, and the two girls stayed hidden in her bedroom until the gunshots stopped. Mm 
The girl came back outside and walked up to the car that she'd come in to see Christian had been shot several times. He begged the girls to help him before he died in the car. Police quickly figured out that Christian's killer was a member of a notoriously violent gang called the Vineland Boys that controlled most of the street drugs in Sun Valley. He was 19-year-old Jose Ledesme, but his nickname in the gang was Peps. Detectives searched his family's home that night, and they found a loaded assault rifle under his mattress, as well as letters written to him from other Vineland boys that were in prison. But Jose wasn't there. He was hanging out with another member of the gang, Mario Catalan. Jose heard the police were looking for him, so he and Mario crossed into Mexico and checked into a motel in Tijuana. Police managed oh, to... Oh, tr- shit, TJ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not TJ. But police managed to track them down after responding to a domestic abuse call in a seaside resort in Mexico. So Mario and his girlfriend had gotten into a fight. And once the Mexican police questioned them, the girlfriend just said, they're wanted for murder. They're wanted for murder in the United States. Yeah, girl. Yeah. So the girlfriend completely told on them they were taken back to the LAPD station in North Hollywood for booking. And detectives Pinner and Rodriguez were on the case. Pinner started grilling Jose, but he never even got close to a confession. He told police they had the wrong person. And Detective Pinner told them he had multiple eyewitnesses who would testify that Jose had been the shooter. Pinner told Jose he knew he'd been on his way to Martha's that night to visit her when Christian was killed outside her house. And he showed Jose a photo lineup called a six-pack which is just like an array of six mugshots that police use to show witnesses to get an ID on a suspect. Yeah. On the six-pack Pinner showed Jose, his photo was circled, and the initials MP were written below, along with Martha's signature and the words, those is the guy that shot my friend's boyfriend. (sighs) So they're like, this little girl Martha Puebla says she saw you shoot her friend. What you what you got to say about that <laughs> to this violent gang member? Quit making me laugh. Jose what said you he say ha- about that. What a freaking idiot. Jose said he had no idea who Martha was. He didn't know anyone named Martha, but he was lying. He knew exactly who Martha was. Police wanted to make double sure he knew exactly who Martha was, though. Yeah, double and, sure. Yeah, double sure. So Pinner even asked Detective Rodriguez for a photo of her to show Jose to say like, hey. This is the girl right here that gave you up. This is oh, what she that looks feels like. like. That feels ooh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right, like I, okay. <laughs> I just want to know. It's like they. Okay. okay. Anyways, Jose, we'll definitely get into that. Jose didn't say anything. I want to do scrunch face, but I'm so sunburned. <laughs> <laughs> it hurts. Too sunburned for scrunch face. Oh, no. But Jose still wasn't saying anything. It didn't matter, though. The case against him was pretty strong without a confession. They found the handgun in the car they'd taken to Mexico that matched Christian's murder and another murder that same week. Oh, my God. But the police were still hoping for more. So they put Jose and Mario in a holding cell together with a hidden microphone recording them. And there was also a payphone right outside the cell. And that night, Jose called his friend Javier Covarrubias, whose nickname was Cokester. <laughs> and he said, and these are his stupid words. Coming out of your mouth. Coming out of my mouth. Do you know the slut that lives there by my house? Her name starts with an M. I need her to disappear. She's dropping dimes. Jose told Javier to keep a low profile, to stay on his toes, and to not get caught. What does dropping dimes mean? Is that code? Yeah, like snitching. And at the same time, Martha knew the Vineland boys were blaming her for helping police with Christian's murder investigation, and she knew she'd been labeled a snitch, but she'd been offered no protection at all while police served her up to Jose and the rest of the gang. And here's the deal. Yeah, like, did they know? Sorry. Did they know... Because I'm sure they're like, well, we can show him. He's in custody. He can't do anything. Did they know he was in a gang? Yes. And that gangs can operate from inside facilities? Yes. And here's the deal. Martha didn't actually help the police at all with Christian's murder investigation. She'd actually tried to protect Jose. She'd even told her friend that had climbed through the window with her 
that if she cooperated with police, Martha would tell the Vineland boys where the friend's family lived. She knew immediately who had done the shooting. Her friend said she'd yelled, it's peps, as the gunshots were going off, but Martha denied ever saying that. That photo six-pack that detectives had shown Jose with his picture circled and the signature from Martha, it was totally faked. (gasps) She never told the police. Are you kidding? Yeah. Yeah. So they show a fake photo lineup saying this little girl, this teenage girl, gave you up and then offered her no protection, no warning, even though they just obviously put her safety in jeopardy. Like, that's clearly why she was killed. At a preliminary hearing on May 1st, 2003, 11 days before she was killed, Martha testified, but she was a very reluctant witness and no help to the prosecution at all. She testified that she had no idea who killed Christian and refused to point out anybody in the courtroom. She said she didn't get a good enough look at the shooter and she couldn't identify them, even though she knew exactly who had done it. Yeah. But it didn't matter. The scheme to murder her was already on. Jose had already put it in motion from his jail cell, which those calls are recorded. (sighs) Anyways, all this happening, all because the police lied. And we've talked before about how police are allowed to lie to suspects in order to get them to confess. They can't offer them a fake deal and they can't beat them up. But basically anything else is allowed. And so we've like talked before about how they can tell you that your DNA was found at the crime scene, even if it wasn't. What the detectives did was not illegal, but it goes against all common sense. They should have known. Like, it's it's almost one of those things like, don't put the hairdryer in the bathtub. Right. It's one of those things that shouldn't have to be written down for you to know not to freaking do it. Like the McDonald's coffee. I'm just kidding. I've learned my lesson. I was just saying. I was just saying. <laughs> They should have known not to tell a known gang member that Martha Puebla, 16-year-old little girl Martha Puebla, had cooperated with them, even if she actually had. She's 16. She's 16. She's 16. Even if she had, even if that had been her signature, even if she had circled him and written, this is the guy that shot my friend's boyfriend, even if all of that were true, they still shouldn't have said. I'm just thinking, like, in all other systems... In life, mm-hmm. I feel like you know, right? When something is confidential, it's it's confidential. Like it's not that hard to, right? And why couldn't they just say you've been identified by eyewitnesses in this six pack, circled it with no additional writing? I guess they were trying to make it seem like they were trying to make Jose really think that, like, believe them. Like, so they've had this in their back pocket. But you'll see later that this is a pattern. This is something they just do. They just do this with suspects. Cool. And the thing is, the fear of gang retaliation is just a fact of life in many neighborhoods in L.A. And a lot of that might have to do with the fact that people in these communities are equally as afraid of police as they are of the gangs. There Mm -hmm. have been instances of police threatening witnesses saying things like they'll take them away from their children if they don't testify. And this is in L.A. specifically. And the homicide clearance rates in high gang crime areas are often around 40 percent or lower, because even though detectives know exactly who did it, they can't get a single witness to testify. And in this article I read, they talked about in San Jose, they have a 90 percent clearance rate that they say is due to building relationships and trust with their community. So threatening witnesses is obviously not the way to build relationships. And lying and telling a gang member suspected of murder that this 16-year-old girl named Martha Puebla, who lives right there, is the one who's giving you up, it should be criminal. They basically, yeah. they basically signed her death certificate. They didn't even warn her or offer her protection at all, which is supposed to be standard procedure when police officers believe someone might be in danger because of their involvement in a case. So Martha's parents did file a civil lawsuit against the detectives and the LAPD, and they said that no one from the LAPD ever warned her that she might be in danger. And there was even a detailed log that the detectives kept of their investigation. It showed that they had no contact with Martha after literally using her as bait during Jose's interrogation. So zero follow-up, like nothing. Yes, nothing, nothing. 
So Javier, the guy that Jose called from his jail cell, he got other gang members to help kill Martha. They even went to a firing range to test a gun they wanted to use. And that night on May 12th, 2003, Javier and the other gang members drove to Martha's block. One of them got out of the car and killed her. And the truth of the whole thing was on that tape of Jose's phone call from prison. Yeah. So the same detectives, Pinner and Rodriguez, are now on the Martha Puebla murder case. It's an open and shut case, right? I mean, they've got the call telling them who ordered the hit and the person agreeing to do it. Easy peasy. When those tapes, like, I think of them like security footage. Like, it's always recording, but you don't go back and look at the tape unless you know something happened. Like, are they not listening to they these should calls have known in real he, time? They should have known he made a call and they should have listened yeah. to it when they investigated her murder. Right. Like when they just they are not gave her up, but they didn't do that. They didn't listen to the call. Instead, they talked to Martha's friend, the one who was there and watched his friend get shot in the head. He dropped his phone and ran away when the shooting started, but he was able to give a description to a sketch artist. They described a Hispanic male with black hair, 19 to 25 years old, stocky build with a mustache and hair just below his lip. They showed a photo lineup to the witness, and he identified the shooter as Juan Catalan, Mario Catalan's brother, the one that had shot Christian. Uh-huh. He's the one that had gone to, to Mexico with Jose after they shot Christian Vargas. Juan had been at the preliminary trial when Martha testified. He looked like the sketch, and he'd been arrested before. Case closed. It was Juan. Only it wasn't. Juan wasn't a member of the Vineland Boys, and apart from that one arrest, which I'll explain, he'd never been in trouble with the law. When he was a kid, his older brother Mario started hanging out with what he calls the wrong crowd, and which I'm assuming is the Vineland Boys, the gang. He'd come home with stereos and car parts, and Juan was intrigued. He wanted to get involved. So Mario started taking him along. They'd break into cars, and Juan would be like the getaway driver. And it Mm. wasn't too long before he got arrested for it. And he said he wanted that trip to be his last trip to jail. Juan actually had a job with his dad working at a family-owned auto shop. On the morning of August 12th, 2003, Juan got to work around 7.30 in the morning with his girlfriend and baby mama, Alma. They'd broken up. They'd been having problems. But it seems like they were just kind of that on-and-off couple that really cared about each other regardless of their issues. And he'd called Alma the night before to ask her to come stay at his house that night. And she didn't really want to, but he was, like, really persistent about it. Uh, And yeah, I'm not really uh, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not really sure if I want to come. But eventually she decided to go. And Juan said that night he had a dream that he was being abducted by aliens. Oh, uh, I wasn't expecting that story. It's basically what's about to happen. So Juan pulled into the shop parking lot that morning, and he saw that his dad's car was already there. His dad was always the first one at the shop. He opened his car door, and immediately his entire car was surrounded by police. (gasps) He was grabbed out of the car and thrown face down on the asphalt and handcuffed. And his dad heard the commotion and looked out the shop door to see Juan getting taken away in handcuffs. And Juan said he was just crying out for his dad. He had no idea what any of this was about. Yeah. So Detective Pinner brings Juan into an interrogation room where Juan completely denies any involvement in Martha's murder. He says he didn't kill anyone. He swears on his daughter's life. So Pinner tells him to prove it. Tell us where you were on May 12th when Martha was murdered. And Juan can't think of anything except the fact that they thought he killed the 16-year-old girl. And let's also remember, it's August. You know, May, June. Where are you, May 12th? It's been three months. So he just says, I'm going to remember where I was, and then we're going to clear all this up. He told them they were making the biggest mistake in the world because they're trying to pin this on someone that had nothing to do with this. Why do I feel like they're always trying to pin something on someone instead of find out what actually happened? Like so often it's like this person, we're going to make all the clues, all of our information fit this instead of the actual discovery phase of figuring out what happened because they want to close the case they don't it all has to do i feel like it all has to do with optics 
and people looking in. They want to say that they closed the case. They got the guy case closed. But my thing is, you had an obvious suspect in jail already. Like, why? Yeah. Why are you going after this guy? And so he even asked to take a lie detector test. But the detectives don't do it. (laughs) Well, and detectives were certain they had the right guy, but wouldn't let him take a lie detector test. Right. Like, why not? If you think it's the right guy. Exactly. Which I think is pretty telling. Right. Like they think it's going to show up as him telling the truth because he might be telling the truth and they don't want that bad evidence. Messing up their theories. Exactly. So Detective Renner tells him this is a death penalty case, and he shows him a photo lineup, a six-pack, with his picture circled. Witnesses had signed their names. It was all fake, of course. Again? Yes. Oh, no, this is the same one. This no, is a different what, one. Different one. They did that with Jose, Lederma, yeah. Martha's signature. Yeah, now they're doing it with one. And now Martha's dead. And now... Mm-hmm. Right. So this seems like a ruse that these detectives just often use. And so far, it's going like, oh, for two for them. It hasn't helped them get a confession one time. They tell Juan somebody already identified him as the shooter and that the picture doesn't lie. And they sent him off to a supermax prison to await trial. A supermax prison? Yeah. Juan knew this was a really bad situation. And he remembered that his cousin was always bragging about this amazing lawyer that he was a filing clerk for. And that lawyer was Todd Melnick, who had been a defense attorney for about 10 years. And he heard Juan's story and he believed him. He didn't know the evidence against him. He didn't know how many witnesses there were. But he believed him. And he told him he was going to get him out of jail. But Juan still couldn't remember where he was that night. He sat in jail for months until his girlfriend Alma remembered something. Ugh, I was wondering, can you like go through, I mean, this is pre-iPhone days, it sounds like, but I would have to like go back and look at like photos and where thousand percent, yeah, I'd have, yeah, absolutely, I would have to do that. Do they let you go like look at anything, like your calendar, your, I mean, can If you you're in look? jail, I don't, I don't know. Ugh. But Alma remembered something. May 12th, 2003 had been the day after Mother's Day. And so she remembered that the day before, Juan had bought Dodgers tickets off of someone and tried to pass them off as a Mother's Day present for his mom. Like, he bought these Dodgers. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I know you won't want to (laughs) go. So he really, they were for him, you know. (sighs) Knowing his mom wouldn't want to go, Juan didn't know who to take to the game on such short notice, and he ended up taking his six-year-old daughter, his cousin Miguel, and his friend Ruben. Juan was at a Dodgers game the night of the murder. Say by baseball. But could they prove it? Oh, yeah. Melnick, the attorney, told Alma to see if she could go find the tickets, but not to touch them when she finds them. So she turned the apartment upside down looking for these tickets, and she finally found a Dodgers envelope with the ticket stubs inside. But that wouldn't be enough. So Melnick contacted Sam Fernandez, the senior VP of general counsel for the Dodgers, They met at Dodger Stadium because Melnick wanted to see where Juan's seats were. And he had really great seats for this game. He was looking for some way of identifying the people that were sitting around them. The tickets Juan got were season tickets somebody had. But obviously, just because somebody has season tickets doesn't mean that they're the ones attending the game. Sure. They tracked down people as far away as Hawaii. But they all said they really didn't see him well enough to testify that he'd been there. So Melnick subpoenaed the Dodger Vision tapes, which show uh-huh. shots of the crowd. And he also subpoenaed the Fox sports broadcast of the game. Yeah, you never know if you're going to be on, on the big screen or like in the back of something. Right, you know, exactly. On the kiss cam. I don't know. <laughs> right, exactly. So he painstakingly went through the videos from that game, trying to find Juan amongst 56,000 <laughs> people. He knew where Juan was sitting, so it was easy to see the block of seats and count the rows down. But getting a shot of Juan was much, much harder. So every time a right-handed batter came up, that would kind of show the block that he was sitting in because he happened to be sitting behind home plate. So if he was up in the nosebleeds, he's screwed. Yeah, exactly. So it took him an entire day to go through a three-hour game because he was just playing it on slow motion. He didn't want to take the chance of missing a single frame. And he was able to find Juan sitting in those seats twice. He was caught on camera. 
but the resolution wasn't high enough. So Melnick goes back to Juan, and he asks him to tell him more about this game, hoping that some detail would spring up that would help them. Yeah, do you have a receipt from buying a hot dog? Do you get a beer? Did you pay for parking? Right. Like, so Juan has this amazing ability to recall games and plays and details, and he tells Melnick all about mm. this game. He told Melnick that the Dodgers had been playing the Braves that night. They'd gone into overtime with a 4-4 tie. And in overtime, it turned into an 11-4 game. Mm-mm, so they it's stayed. It's called overtime. What's Mm-mm. it called? Extra innings? Extra innings. Isn't that overtime? Nah. <laughs> okay. Not with your dingo den and just. <laughs> <laughs> Should I leave that in? I'm going to record it again. <laughs> and then I'll decide if I want to leave it in. Oh, you're definitely leaving it in. You're not cutting that. <laughs> Okay. I love sports. I hate sports. I know. I bet that Juan did not call it overtime. <laughs> I, bet, I bet you he didn't. The point no, is... My dad would be so proud of me. <laughs> the point is, they stayed late at the game. <laughs> and <laughs> No, the point is, you said overtime. The point That's is, they stayed, they stayed late at the game. Because remember, Martha was murdered at 1032. Yeah, well, so, all joking aside, do you, was it an evening game? Like, did it start like seven or something? Or do you know, a day game? No, it was a day game, but it went into extra innings, so it went pretty late. Yeah. And so they stayed pretty late at the game, and on their way out, Juan had stopped to buy a pack of baseball cards for his daughter. Hmm. But the most important thing he said was, I think they were filming something that day. He told Melnick that someone in his section had said something about someone named Super Dave Osborne being there that day, who's also known as an actor-comedian named Bob Einstein. He said he'd been to hundreds of Dodgers games before and never seen them filming anything. But he remembered security personnel like blocking his aisle and this man walking up and down the stairs by his aisle for all the different takes. So Melnick reaches back out to the Dodgers, this time looking for their media relations person. And they meet up at the stadium and the media person is like flipping through their calendar until they land on May 12th. And sure enough, there's something written on that day. It's some obscure production company name that Melnick didn't recognize, but there was a phone number. So Melnick calls the number and they answer and say, thanks for calling HBO. (gasps) I'm sorry. <laughs> so it turns out it wasn't some obscure production company filming that day. They were filming the HBO comedy show Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, my gosh. Curb Your Enthusiasm. That's a popular show now, right? I don't think it's still on the air, but it was on for a long time. Right. But I think like now it has like a following. People oh, like really? <laughs> I tried watching this episode and it's just not my style. But yeah. Seinfeld wasn't my style either. And it's the same guy. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. Okay, so Tim Gibbons, a producer at HBO, he gets on the phone and he talks to Melnick. He listens to Melnick's story about having to find footage of his client at the baseball game to prove an alibi, and he thought he was absolutely nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since there were 56,000 people at this game. How could this one guy possibly be on camera? He told him that they don't usually release pre-production footage, so Melnick would have to wait for the episode to release. And Melnick begs him. He says, I need to find anything I can. I have to place my client at this game that night. Can he just subpoena it or something? Like, I don't think so, because he's not a cop, like, you know, but... Tim Gibbons goes to Larry David, the creator and star of Curb Your Enthusiasm. He's the guy who also created Seinfeld. He tells Larry what's going on. And Larry says, yeah, tell him to come down. He can look at the footage. Hmm. They had been filming the sixth episode of season four of Curb Your Enthusiasm called Carpool Lane. And the whole plot of this episode was that Larry David picks up a sex worker so he can use the carpool lane so he can get to this Dodgers game faster. (sighs) They had been (laughs) – and then he has to take her to the game with him. (laughs) That does sound – we're watching Seinfeld currently. I never liked that show. I never thought it was funny, and I don't know if I've now hit the age that it's funny to me. Uh So we're currently watching Seinfeld, like, all the way through. And uh, that sounds like something that would happen in Uh that show. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And they'd been debating how they were going to make the Dodgers game work. Like, would they just use the stadium and fill it with thousands of extras? And the Dodgers stadium is part of the entertainment community in L.A., so they wanted to cooperate and give them permission to film at an actual game, which, like, Mm -hmm. never happens. But they'd have to be pretty low-key about the whole thing. So they showed up late afternoon around 4 or 5, and they shot in two sections. It was very arbitrary where they were placed. They literally could have been anywhere in the stadium. Yeah, this is so lucky for him. Yeah, Kim Whitley, who played the sex worker, she said she never even saw the cameras, so she didn't even know if people knew that they were filming. The whole point was to be invisible. They had this really long lens camera, and they were basically shooting them from across the field. And it would start, the episode would start with Larry and Kim being in really bad seats up way up top. And then he spots Bob Einstein's character, or Bob Einstein. I'm sorry, Bob. I don't know how to say your name. Bob Einstein's <laughs> character, Marty Funkhauser, in the really good seats down below, which just happened to be a few rows in front of Juan and his group. And so Larry would see Marty down in the good seats, and he would move lower to try to get Marty to let him sit with him because he had an extra seat. So this guy, Robert was the PA working that day. And he remembers it being absolute chaos trying to film at a real live game. What's a PA mean? Oh, personal assistant? Uh, Production assistant. They're like the gopher, the errand runner. Like they basically do whatever they're told to do. So the scene they were shooting down below involved Larry's in the aisle trying to convince Marty to let him sit with him. 
So Robert's job is to hold back like thousands of people from walking down the aisle so that they wouldn't block the shot of Larry in the aisle. But they were also paying customers, so they really couldn't hold them back for very long. About midway through the game, as they're filming the scene with Larry David in the aisle, Juan's daughter asked for something from concessions. So he took her to go get like ice cream or something. When Juan came back with his daughter, Robert, the PA, was blocking him. And Juan saw that there was a camera crew on his exact aisle. Like, Larry (gasps) is shooting on his aisle. Juan is trying to walk down the steps to go back to his seat with his daughter, but Robert's blocking him because they're shooting. Yeah. But he did eventually let him go down the stairs. And Robert's like, I either didn't know that they were rolling, that the cameras were rolling, or I was just a really terrible PA. And I let them through anyway. But but either way, Juan and <sighs> his daughter were allowed to pass through. And every time I watch this documentary, I've seen it a couple of times. It is chilling. Like, I get goosebumps all over my body. And those are different from full body chills. Okay? <laughs> okay. I was wondering. <laughs> when you see Larry David talking to Marty Funkhauser, and Larry stands up. And then you just see Juan enter the frame. And I mean, like, close up on the camera. He's right in front of the camera, walking away from it, holding his daughter's hand. You see them walk down the aisle towards their seats, maybe like five rows down from the camera. So really close. And this is on an HBO camera. You know, this isn't some crappy Dodger vision. You see him turn. You get a clear view of his face as he lets his daughter, like, into the row. And then he walks in behind her. And right when he gets into his row and sits down, Larry David starts walking up the aisle and he's like waving to the audience, just kind of giving his like, you know, final curtain bow, whatever. And then he just keeps walking up the stairs. So it's like this completely innocuous thing, this thing that should have been so innocuous. Like you have this like famous person here, Larry, shooting this mega show for HBO. And this rando walks in front like the, the scene is over. Larry's walking up and like waving to everybody in the audience like I'm Larry David. Well, like, what are the yeah, what are even the odds that there's a TV show the day Yes. I mean everything. Okay. It is amazing. Like of all the places for them to be filming, they were filming in his aisle. The fact that they yeah. decided to film that day. So Melnick is going through all of these tapes, the HBO tapes, and he's getting really discouraged. Because it's not until like tape five or six that he finally sees that scene and he just jumps out of his chair and gasps when he sees this footage. He said it was just so cool. And the whole crew said that they felt really good (laughs) that they'd accidentally proved an alibi. I just can like see everyone standing around and like just a cheer. He's there. (laughs) That's him. They kept going through the tapes and they spotted Juan twice more in the footage. So Melnick calls Juan, who's still in prison at this point, by the way, never got bonded. And he tells him, dude, you're on the tape. And Juan says he just let the phone go like he couldn't believe it. But it wasn't enough. I'm sorry. The videos were time coded. The first time he's on camera, it's 855. And the last shot is 915. And Martha Puebla was murdered at 1032. The prosecutor in the case, Beth Silverman, said the tape isn't enough. He'd have plenty of time to leave the game and still kill Martha, I guess with his six-year-old daughter in the backseat of the car. Beth Silverman was nicknamed the sniper because she likes to pick people off with the death penalty, which prosecutors that are death penalty happy are just like so gross to me. Like, I mean, it's one thing to be like fighting for the death penalty. It's another thing to like be so proud of how many people that you've had, yeah. you know, executed. Right, <laughs> I don't really get that. So great. It's like Rome to me, just ancient Rome. <laughs> this isn't the Coliseum. Right. She was very proud to say that she'd never lost a murder conviction, which is great if they're all guilty. But she said Juan's alibi is not legitimate. She doesn't think the HBO tapes show anything. She said that Juan had been identified by a witness that was there. And they'd established he had a motive. He'd been in the audience the day Martha Puebla testified in the trial against his brother, Mario, and that he'd killed her as revenge, even though she hadn't actually pointed anyone out at the trial and basically refused to identify the shooter, Martha. 
Silverman also said that by Juan's own admission, he was dropping his cousin Miguel, who had been with him at the game, he was dropping him off at home, and he lived on the same street as Martha, like putting him 100 to 150 yards away from the murder scene that night. So Melnick, his lawyer, said, okay, fine. We have to find a way to put you at Dodger Stadium longer so they wouldn't be able to say that he had time to commit this shooting. Does Juan say, like, how long he was there? Like, does Juan know, even if he can prove it or not, where he was at 1030? Like, was he leaving the parking lot? Like, what? Nothing. No, he doesn't know. So Todd Melnick, the lawyer, he starts asking Juan about the calls that he made and received that night. And Juan said that Alma had called him several times to ask if the game was over since it had gone into extra innings. I have extra innings in my script here. (laughs) (laughs) Still leaving it. (laughs) Since it had gone into extra innings. And the last call from Alma came in at 10-11. And Juan was telling her on the phone that they were heading out of Dodger Stadium, like, while they're on the phone. Mm -hmm. So Melnick remembers from the O.J. Simpson case of all places that (laughs) while O.J. is doing his low-speed chase down the freeway, that police were able to see where he was based on which towers were pinging off his cell phone when the call was transmitted. So Melnick figured they could do the same thing with Juan. Remember, this is 2003. Yeah. So Melnick got the phone records with the pings, which would show exactly where a person was during a certain time period. And the tower that pinged that 10-11 call was right across the street from Dodger Stadium. And the radius for that tower was one mile. Oh, booyah. Booyah. Listen, I'm learning a lot about cell towers and radiuses. (laughs) I know. All of the things. So he had to have been within at least a mile of Dodger Stadium at 10-11 that night. Is Martha's house within a mile? It's about 20 minutes away from Dodger Stadium. So, I mean, I guess they could have fought it and said that he could have been like in his, you know how long it takes to get out of a stadium. I mean. Yeah. I mean, it's the Dodgers. It's not like. You know, I don't know. There were 56,000 people there. Right. Like in May, which is the beginning of the season. Like it's not. Right. I don't know. I say right. Like, I don't know what that means, but (laughs) I'm just saying it's uh, people were there. There was a lot of people. (laughs) They all drive because it's L.A. And it's L.A. You're not getting anywhere in 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Sorry. Right. So Juan had been in prison nearly six months by the time his preliminary hearing came up. And the preliminary hearing, I actually had to look this up because I'd never, I didn't really know what it was. And it's an alternative to a grand jury trial. It's Mm. where the prosecution must show that enough evidence exists to charge the defendant. It's like a little mini trial in front of a judge where the prosecution will call witnesses and introduce evidence and the defense can cross-examine witnesses. Well, it sucks that you still have to wait six months for even that. Like, that's crazy. I bet that it was because Todd Melnick, his attorney, was putting in extensions because they were trying to get all these tapes and all of that and, like, Mm -hmm. try to – I think that's probably why it took so long. I guess you'd rather want to stay there longer to make sure your You can leave. Right. Right. Man, I'm a big Melnick fan. I feel like he's really, like, putting in – doing his due diligence, you know? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. And then a judge will determine whether or not the evidence established probable cause instead of a grand jury. So at Juan's preliminary hearing, Melnick told him when he walks in to not look at the left side of the court because that's where Martha's family was all seated. And Juan is so nervous, but he knew he hadn't done this. Yeah. His daughter had to testify at this hearing. She, at six years old, she had to get up on the stand, answer questions, proving that she knew the difference between the truth and a lie. And while Juan just silently sobbed from his seat at the defense table, she testified that she went to a Dodger game and that Juan had bought her ice cream and candy and a pack of Dodgers cards. So Melnick also presented all of the cell phone evidence, but Like in every other trial using cell phone evidence, it was very confusing to the judge. You can't use incoming call, outgoing or incoming? Incoming calls. For location. If if it's AT&T, because this was an incoming call that they were using for location. So (laughs) I don't know. Yikes. But they were rattling off phone numbers instead of just saying it was like this person's number. And then they're rattling off the numbers assigned to the cell phone towers. And it was just basically lost on the judge. Like she didn't get it. 
I feel like you really need visuals if you're going to present cell phone evidence. Like you need maps up there to point to. Oh, and like show. a flow chart, like a visual <laughs> would be helpful <laughs> for someone who's trying to follow something. Exactly. Interesting. Correct. Mm-hmm. Right. Weird. So the prosecution made their case and said, yes, this is a one witness ID case where basically all of our evidence that it was one comes from this one witness. But this witness is extremely credible and has no reason to lie and made a composite sketch that is strikingly similar to the defendant. Do you know who else it looks strikingly similar to? Probably Mario or... Probably Mario. I don't know what he looks like. But also, I think it looks like Jose Ledesma, who was the one who put the hit out on Martha in the first place, the one who had the biggest motive in this whole thing. So again, why they didn't go after him first just boggles my mind. Wait, sorry. Jose and Mario are in jail, though, yes? No, they were out at this time. Because Jose was in the car when Martha was murdered. Okay. But I don't even think he was the shooter. I think it was this other guy who we'll get into later. And I just think Jose was just in the car. So there's a third guy who I couldn't find a picture of. I really tried hard to find a picture of this guy. But that means there's a third guy out there who also looks strikingly similar to this sketch because it's of him. So literally. So both both of the men that were in jail for Christian's murder were out at this time? I believe so. Yes. I believe so. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I know Jose was, and I doubt they would have kept Mario in jail longer than Jose. Do we know why they got out? I'm sure they made bail. And also probably they couldn't prove it. They couldn't prove that they'd done it. Martha refused to identify him, and they had no other Mm -hmm. evidence. I guess they had the gun, but, I mean, he might have gotten off. I don't know. But give me any Hispanic man with a shaved head and a mustache, and you've matched this sketch. I mean, so actually, I want to do a little experiment. Okay, I'm going to send you the composite sketch, and then I'm going to send you Jose and Juan's picture, but I'm not going to tell you who is who. You can probably figure it out. But I want you to tell me which one you think is the one that matches the sketch. And I want you to tell me, like, tell me which one you think it is in the sketch. And if you think you could tell for certain, like 100%, I know it's this guy, if it's either. And I want you to be honest, which usually when you're honest, these things don't always go my way. So. (laughs) <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if this makes it in. But here is the composite sketch. Oh. And here Okay, well, unfortunately for you, I already know who this sketch looks like. This looks like my date to the eighth grade banquet <laughs> in junior high. I okay. know this man. And here is Jose and Juan. This sketch has great eyebrows. Mm-hmm. Which one of those has great eyebrows? <laughs> <laughs> I cannot say. Which one do you think um, that that sketch looks like the most? The one on the left or the one on the right? Okay, well, they have features of both. I confidently could not place either of these men with this sketch. Okay. But I could see how both of these, if you showed me one at a time, I'd say like, yes and yes. Right. They both resemble the sketch, but neither enough where you're like 100% for sure that's the guy. Those pictures will be on our... Instagram. So check it out mm-hmm. at Creeper's Pod. Who is on the right? Jose is on the right. Juan is on the left. Yeah. I mean, I can see here where that there would be some discrepancies. And if that's your one, like your biggest piece of evidence is that is the guy ID'd him and drew the sketch that looks strikingly similar to him. That's like that's all their evidence. That not to mention he went up to Martha and said, you know who this is. Right. You know me. Yeah, Juan doesn't know Martha. Right. Yeah, except for, I guess, from the trial, because he was at the preliminary trial. So that's all they have. They have that Juan was at the preliminary hearing when Martha refused to testify against his brother and against Jose. And then they have a sketch. I don't even know how Juan got entangled up in this. Why was he even on that array of photos in the first place? That's what boggles my mind. Why didn't they have Jose and Mario and all these other gang members up there with a connection to the Martha killing or to the Christian Vargas killing who would have had way more of a motive to kill Martha? Yeah, this is definitely a sketch of Jose. But would I put someone in prison on it? Like me identifying this? No way. No way. Okay. 
great. So the judge in this case was Judge Leslie Dunn. And she told the prosecution that she had no doubt that their eyewitness was attempting to be credible. But she reminded them that he'd observed the murder on a darkened residential street under obviously the most traumatic of circumstances. It doesn't matter how credible you are personally. Like, you want to do the right thing. You're, you're not lying. This is what I saw. Right. But if that's the only evidence you've got, you got nothing. And honestly, I cannot believe that Beth Silverman, the prosecutor, was prepared to actually take this to trial. I can't believe she even expected to get, yeah, on that, yes, on the sketch, the eyewitness, and the motive, and the fact that he was in the vicinity dropping Miguel off at the time. I mean, that's all the evidence she had. Right. I think it's funny that that's like all she had. Meanwhile... Having purchased Dodgers tickets and, like, the timestamps aren't enough. Like, even being on film isn't enough because it was two hours earlier. One hour like, earlier. one hour. And you have your daughter. Like, it's weird to me that that's – Right. There's two different thresholds of, like, what is enough evidence. Like, who else did you investigate? Did you investigate a single other person? Yeah. Or just mm-hmm. the first guy that this witness points to? I think it was him. And I don't even know if he did that because the L.A. Times article I read said that the police had faked that witness ID just like they had in Martha. They said that it was a lie, the L.A. Times article. So Judge Dunn said she took the interrogation audio tapes home with her so that she could listen to them over and over as many times as she wanted to. And she said she listened to them over and over and over. She said she made her children listen to it. She kept asking oh. herself, is this, I know, she said, that's probably not the best move. She said she kept asking herself, is this the voice of a guilty man? Which to me, is, it's just a crazy way to judge a case, but. Yeah, I mean, uh. Okay. But she said she was anguished by this case. And the only thing at the forefront of her mind the entire time was Martha Puebla and doing right by her. But because doing right by Martha means actually capturing the asshole who killed her, She came back and dismissed Juan's case. Oh, my gosh. Thank goodness. Because what I thought you were going to say is because often when people want to do right by a victim, they feel like air on the side of caution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're just like, well, we want to close this and and find the killer. And Mm -hmm. they will pin that. That that makes me happy. Yes. Juan didn't know what was happening. And Melnick just leaned over and told him it's over. (gasps) Oh. Melnick at the trial said that Juan would have been facing the death penalty if he hadn't, by the grace of God, gotten Dodgers tickets from someone the day before, invited all these people with him, and gotten caught on video from an HBO show. And Alma said what goes through her mind all the time is, imagine if he would have just stayed home to watch the game. Yeah. Which is crazy. I need to be doing stuff every day. I need to be out on hot air balloon rides. I need to be at <laughs> games. I need to be. I just you. I know. I, I don't need to do document every day. I do not do nearly enough around here. <laughs> Listen, when Russell asks me next time about my Starbucks addiction, I'm going to be like, I've got a track. I mean, I've been going like every day. I got a track mm-hmm. that I am doing something every. These are my receipts. Uh huh. Absolutely. When Juan got out, he told his family all he wanted was a Coke. (gasps) Oh, that's what he really wanted. In the documentary, one of the talking heads in it says, you know, it's dangerous to view life from the what if perspective. Like, what if Dodger Stadium hadn't done the deal with Larry David? What if the camera crew hadn't gone to that aisle? What if his daughter decided she didn't want to go to the game? Or wanted to leave early? Or what if she hadn't wanted ice cream right at that moment? What if Juan hadn't made that phone call at 10 11? Yeah. What if Melnick would have sucked at his job? What if he had got a terrible public defender? Absolutely, that's a huge problem. Because HBO said no at first, and then he got a hold of Larry David. Mm hmm. Like, well, and a public defender might not have had the time. Because they're so overloaded with cases. They're just trying to get a deal. They're just trying to get you the best deal that you can because they can't investigate. They don't have time to make phone calls to HBO or the Dodger Stadium. They're not calling Dodger Stadium to ask. They're not going down there for lunch and talking to the whoever. They don't have time. It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. This is why if I was going to have another life, 
I wouldn't want to be a public, I would want to go to law school. I would want to be a defense attorney. But I wouldn't want to be a public defender because I feel like they can't help anybody because they're way too overwhelmed with work. And if I'm way too overwhelmed with work, I'm not putting in extra effort, please. Like, let's just be (laughs) honest right now. So I would want to work for a good law firm that does a lot of like pro bono yeah. defense work for pe- for where you can actually like look at a case and think you have a good case for an innocent person and choose mm-hmm. to represent that person pro bono. I would love that. I would love that if I was good at that kind of stuff. But <laughs> I'd probably just okay, get up we'll there and be like, where's your go common back. sense? <laughs> Where are your gloves? <laughs> Don't touch things. So in 2004, the FBI ended up getting involved with this case, with the Martha Puebla case, as part of a larger case against the Vineland Boys, who over oh. several decades had grown from like just a street gang to a criminal enterprise with a national reach. Oh, my gosh. And in 2008, with guilty pleas to avoid the death penalty, Jose Ledesma and Javier Covarrubias both admitted to taking part in killing Martha. And a third guy, 30-year-old Raul Reblondo, this is the guy I couldn't find a picture of, pleaded guilty as well, but his hearing was closed, so we don't know the full terms of that. An article mm-hmm. in the Los Angeles Daily Mail identified Raul as the person who actually shot Martha, but all the other articles either have that person unnamed or don't say specifically which one it was that shot her, but they are all serving life in prison without parole. Dang. Yeah. But like, how hard was that? How hard was it to find the guys that killed her? Like, I mean, I was going to say, Martha would still be here had they listened to that phone call. Potentially. Potentially, if they had listened to it faster. I mean, I get that they're not like checking every single phone call. But after she was murdered, you you literally just told a very dangerous person that she was going to like testify against you. So how about you go... You go listen to those phone calls that happened right after you told them that. Like. Yeah. And who has a bigger motive? The person in the gang who she potentially told on or one, the guy that works at the auto body shop and has a little six-year-old girl. And just wants a Coke. And just wants a Coke. Best believe that would be, I just need a Dr. Pepper. Uh-huh. Found- Fountain Dr. Pepper extra ice, okay? And Juan received a $320,000 settlement in a lawsuit against the city of L.A. and the LAPD. One of the detectives was removed from working homicide cases, and his partner was transferred to auto fraud detail. But other than that, I don't believe they got any other consequences for their part in Martha's murder. Who actually pays that when it's like the LAPD pays this $320,000 settlement. Like, they just have a tax somewhere. The taxpayers right. pay it. It should make people not want to pay. Like, it should make these people try to avoid those lawsuits by actually getting the right person in jail. You know? Mm-hmm. Because there are a lot of places that won't pay out, even for an exoneration. You spend 30 years in prison, you're totally exonerated, and you don't get a dime. You get a... Oh, sorry. Hell no. There are a lot of states where that's a thing. And it's stupid because somebody should be held accountable for that. Somebody messed up. Somebody didn't do their job right. If you have somebody in prison for that long and then they get exonerated, it's so hard to get exonerated. That means like you really proved you didn't do it. Yeah. Anyways, that is the story of Martha Puebla. Man. A little bit of baseball. Yeah. A little bit of good feel. I mean, very sad. I I know, but it's like very sad. But it's also got this like really just serendipitous story Mm -hmm. inside of there. You know how I felt very like torn about how now that we do this podcast, I feel like I've kind of been identified as like a true crime person. Well, I mean, I guess I am. But True crime people get labeled, you know, it's very, like, uh, controversial because people think we're just really into, like, murder and, like, enjoying pain of other people, which is definitely not the case. Like, I do not enjoy when we hear about, like, these things happening to Martha and the victims. However, I think the ability to bring awareness and to talk about things that happen and educate people and share 
you know, either foundations or charities, but also to tell people things like the police can lie to you and say your DNA was there and that's not true or don't take a lie detector or getting an attorney doesn't make you look guilty. I think that's all so important. Absolutely. No, I don't think anybody that likes to hear true crime stories revels in their pain. We're not psychopaths. I have a organization for you. Well, speaking of. So the organization that I want to highlight today is the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles, because that's where this story took place. But I also want to let all of our listeners know that there are legal aid foundations in every state, regional, city, state, like you can find a legal aid foundation near you if you would rather, you know, donate to your own community. But we're going to put the link to the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles because that's where this story this week took place. And that's an organization that could have helped the people in this story. So what Legal Aid does is they are a nonprofit law firm that protects and advances the rights of the most underserved, leveling the playing field and ensuring that everyone can have access to the justice system, basically making justice equal, which is my biggest issue with our legal system in general, is that justice is not equal. You know, I don't know how Juan afforded Todd Melnick as an attorney. I don't know if Todd was working pro bono for him because his cousin worked for him or what. But That kind of legal representation is not available to every community and every person. Money is really the key to a good defense. And that's just so ridiculous and so unfair. For our justice system to be that unfair is something that really bothers me a lot in my day-to-day life. They provide direct representation. They offer counsel and advice. They provide referrals. They are seeking to achieve equal justice for people living in poverty across greater Los Angeles. And they change lives through direct representation, system change, and community education. So we are going to link to this organization in our show notes if you would like to support them or any other legal aid foundations. And also, I just want to put a call out. If you, the listeners, if you know of any other organization that is also doing this work besides legal aid, they're the only ones that I knew about. I've heard of them before. But if you know of another organization that is doing work like this that you want us to highlight, please send that to me. I would love to look into them and highlight them on one of our episodes. And that's it. That's all I got. So. Well, it was a good one. (laughs) Thanks. And thank you all so much for listening. We would love to hear from all of you. We love hearing from you. So please find us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at CreepersPod. And you can email us any feedback, any case suggestions, foundations or organizations or charities that you want us to highlight. Send us any of that, a nice note, whatever, at creeperspod at gmail.com. And a big thanks to all the peeps and creeps who left us a review on Apple Podcasts. They really make our day. They are, oh yeah, very fun to read (laughs) and entertaining. (laughs) So if you like us and you like this episode... Be like Todd Melnick and prove it. We'd love for you to give us a five-star rating and a review. <laughs> that was amazing. Be sure to subscribe to True Crime Creepers so you'll hear our next episode as soon as it drops. And Kristen will tell me another crazy story and probably make another terrible and correct sports reference. Uh, if it involves sports, <laughs> count on me to mess it up. <laughs> Bye, peeps and creeps. Bye.